Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and everything in between. They also have a great library podcast, which I highly suggest checking out when you finish this episode here. Before we get started, I do want to touch on one real-life true crime thing that's kind of going on right now. Uh, An old acquaintance of mine is missing a family member. Her name is McKenna Irwin Burns, and she was last seen in Sudbury, downtown Sudbury, Ontario, to be exact. Now, if any of you listen from in and around that area and know McKenna, know her whereabouts, please contact her family or the Sudbury police or your local police if you have any news or whereabouts about this young woman. She's 22 years old, Dirty blonde hair, and as I said, was last seen in downtown Sudbury. She was last seen wearing a long coat, light-colored pants, and white running shoes. She's a thin build, about 5'5", Caucasian complexion. But with that said, again, if you have any information, please do contact your local police services, or if you're in the Sudbury area and know her whereabouts, again, please contact the Sudbury police. So with true crime, you get a lot of weird stuff. And a lot of the time, family members are involved in harming other family members. And that's kind of what's going to happen in today's case. Back in the 1950s, a man and his wife seemingly had their house invaded by a quote-unquote white form that said shape ultimately killed a pregnant woman and left another man, well, not in great shape either for many reasons, which we'll get into in just a moment. This is the case of the Shepherds, Samuel and Marilyn Reese. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. First off, I just want to say this is a long one, and it might be more than one episode. So, you know, buckle up, because it's a big, long, weird case, and I don't know really how to really cover it all without going into every bit of detail that I can find. Now, this whole thing starts with Samuel Shepard, who was a neurosurgeon in his time, and he had a lovely wife called Marilyn Reese. Now, the two were expecting a child back in the 1950s, but before we get to that, let's just look at a little bit more about Sam Shepard. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and the youngest of three sons of Richard Allen Shepard. He attended Cleveland Heights High School, and he was an excellent student where he was an active and all-American football, basketball, and track star. He was class president for three years, and Shepard met his future wife, Marilyn Reese, while in high school. So the classic 1950s high school sweetheart love story. Isn't that adorable? Now, apparently several small Ohio colleges offered him an athletic scholarship. Shepard chose to follow the lead of his father and older brothers and pursue a career in medicine. He enrolled at Hanover College in Indiana to study pre-osteopathic medicine courses. Then he took supplementary courses at Case Western University. Shepard then finished his education at the Los Angeles Osteopathic School of Physicians and Surgeons, which is now the University of California, Irvine. That's a little more easy on the palate to say. He was awarded the Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine, which is a medical degree, so he's a DO. 
Shepard completed his internship and residency in neurosurgery at the Los Angeles County General Hospital. And on February 21st, 1945, in lovely Hollywood, California, he married his sweetheart, Marilyn Reese. A few years later, he returned to Ohio and joined his father's growing medical practice at Bayview Hospital. Alright, so now that we have that out of the way, let's get into the murder itself. Again, there's not a whole lot of information on the murder. It's mostly about the trial, the investigation, the evidence, and the mystery surrounding it all. On the night of Saturday, July 3rd, 1945, Shepard and Marilyn were entertaining their neighbors at their lakefront home while they were watching the movie Strange Holiday. Sam fell asleep on the couch. Marilyn walked the neighbors out, so he's a great host. But I mean, he's a doctor, so he's probably tired like all the fucking time. I wash dishes for a living and I'm tired all the fucking time. So I can only imagine what being a fucking neurosurgeon in 1954 would be. No technology, probably not a whole lot of help. I also feel like the methods and technology were very primitive for the time as well, and I think they were still doing lobotomies. So, I mean, he's a neurosurgeon, he probably performed a few of those in his time. But I digress. Sometime between Sam falling asleep and Marilyn letting the neighbors go home, letting the neighbors go home, walking the neighbors out after their party, something terrible happened. There was apparently an invasion of the house. An invasion that cost Marilyn her life. Yes, in the early mornings of July 4th, 1954, Marilyn Shepard was bludgeoned to death in her bed by an unknown instrument. The bedroom was covered in blood spatter and drops of blood were found on the floor throughout the house. Some items from the house, including Sam Shepard's wristwatch, keychain, and key, and fraternity ring, appeared to have been stolen. They were later found in a canvas bag and shrubbery behind the house, which is kind of an odd place to stash your, well, stash, if you just robbed the place. Why wouldn't you just take it with you? Anyway, according to Shepard, he was sleeping soundly on the daybed in the living room when he heard the cries from his wife. He ran upstairs where he saw a, quote, white-bipped form, end quote, in the bedroom, and then he was knocked unconscious. When he awoke, he saw the person downstairs, chased the intruder out of the house, down to the beach where they tussled and again Shepard was knocked unconscious. At 5.40 a.m. a neighbor received an urgent phone call from Shepard who pleaded for him to come to his home. When the neighbor and his wife arrived, Shepard was found shirtless and his pants were wet with bloodstains on the knees. Authorities arrived shortly after and Shepard seemed disoriented and in shock. The family dog was not heard barking to indicate an intruder and their seven-year-old son, Sam, was fast asleep in the adjacent bedroom throughout the entire incident. So let's dissect a little bit of that for a moment. First thing that stands out, family dog not heard barking. Now that could be for a number of reasons. Maybe he recognized the intruder and therefore would not really think about, you know, alarming people around him. Secondly, the dog could have been sedated. Wouldn't be too hard to stick a pill in some meat and then go, hey boy, here you go. No barking, go sleepies. And I do not know if they ever tested the dog for any sort of trace evidence of sedatives or anything like that. The fact that their seven-year-old son had been fast asleep at the time kind of raises a little bit of an alarm. If, if Marilyn was screaming, as Sam said, when she was being beaten to death, which I think anybody would be, then surely her seven-year-old son, who is apparently closer to her in his bedroom than Sam was in the living room, would have heard the cries for help. 
but again, maybe he was sedated. It's not impossible that somebody broke into the bedroom of the child first, put a little bit of something on a cloth and just held it over his mouth until he went night-night, deeper night-nights anyway. So, I don't know, it's a weird scenario and not all of Sam's story lines up. And that is going to come up very shortly, as you'll see. So naturally, Sam was arrested for the murder. He was the only suspect, and nobody really, I don't think, ever believed that he saw a wiped bit form, which somehow knocked him out while he was staring at it, which would mean two intruders at the very minimum. And why they would choose to just bludgeon the wife is beyond anybody. It's a weird thing that they would steal a couple of trinkets and then toss it just in the backyard and hide in a bush on the property, and then beat the wife? Not the husband, not the kid, not the dog, just the wife. So, that seems like there's no motive for anybody to do anything other than rob the place. I'm sure the shepherds were well off. I mean, a neurosurgeon in 1950 probably made a good chunk of change. And they had a lake house, which is where this property was. So naturally, that's a big target. My granddad lives on a lake house. And that's a whole story for another day. But I stayed up there a couple times by myself dog watching while he was uh, off doing fun stuff that retired people do. And it was scary. It's not an isolated property, and it's not a massive property. It's just a regular house. It's just on the beachfront. But the time of year it was, I don't think anybody else was around. So seeing some lights on, I could have been a target. It just always stuck in the back of my mind. He's been up there for 35 years. Nothing's ever happened. But the sense of urgency still remained every night when I turned the lights off. Maybe somebody had gotten in, and I didn't know, and nobody would never know. It would be weeks before anybody found my fucking body. At the time, when I was dog-sitting, I was there for, I don't know, 10 days or something like that by myself. So it would have been at least 10 days for somebody to find my body and then be like, hey, um, what happened? And I suspect that would have been the only motive for this murder. Maybe she got up. Maybe it was a rape gone wrong. It's very difficult to really just hypothesize all this information just because, well, it's just that, a hypothesis. We don't have any information regarding what really happened that night other than some things were stolen and that Marilyn was murdered. So with Sam as the only suspect, a trial began on October 18th, 1954 and it lasted nine weeks. The murder investigation and the trial were notable for the extensive publicity of it all. Some newspapers and other media in Ohio were accused of bias against Shepard and inflammatory coverage of the case, which were criticized for immediately labeling him the only viable suspect. A judge even later criticized the media saying, quote, if ever there was a trial by newspaper, this is a perfect example. And the most insidious example was the Cleveland Press. For some reason, that newspaper took upon itself the role of accuser, judge, and jury. End quote. Now, that's something we are accustomed to in 2022 is trial by media. It seems nobody can get a fair shake at trial because before the trial is even begun, everybody knows every dirty little secret about the accused. And just because you may have done or said some terrible things in the past doesn't mean you are guilty of whatever crime you are being accused of currently. And that doesn't just go for criminal trials either. The court of public opinion seems to rule over everything nowadays and it doesn't matter if you made an inappropriate fart joke in 2001 you're fucking done you're canceled too bad so sad goodbye and i think that cancel culture is a little bit extreme but 1954 this is nearly unheard of 
the extent by which the media covered this trial and this investigation and this murder in general appeared to have influenced the investigation, which is something you never want to see. Again, these people weren't accustomed to the media pressure. So if newspaper A publishes that this guy's guilty, no ifs, ands, or buts, this is it, this is what happened, here's the evidence we are making up that you should believe, and then everybody believes it, then they turn on the police when they say something differently. So now the pressure is on the police to agree with the public opinion, and that is where we run into issues. On July 21st, 1954, the Cleveland Press ran a front-page editorial titled Do It Now, Dr. Gerber, which called for a public inquest. Hours later, Dr. Samuel Gerber, the coroner investigating the murder, announced that he would hold an inquiry the next day. The Cleveland Press ran another front-page editorial titled Why Isn't Sam Shepard in Jail? And on July 30th, which was titled in later editions, quit stalling and bring him in. That night, Shepard was arrested for a police investigation. The local media ran salacious front-page news stories that were inflammatory to Shepard's character, and they had no supporting facts and were later disproven. Again, that sounds a lot like today. People just going on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok spewing nonsense, factless opinions that they are shouting from the mountaintops as if it was fucking gospel. But no, 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 that's how people get in trouble, and that's how you ruin lives. During the trial, a popular radio show broadcast a report about a New York City woman who claimed to be his mistress and the mother of his illegitimate child. Since the jury was not sequestered, meaning they heard all this shit, two of the jurors admitted to the judge that they had heard the broadcast, but the judge did not dismiss them. From interviews with some of the jurors years later, it is likely that the jurors were contaminated by the press before the trial and even perhaps during it. The Supreme Court later called the trial a carnival atmosphere, which is what you want when trying to figure out if somebody's guilty, innocent, or somewhere in between of a murder where they could spend the rest of their life or even be put on death row. So yeah, good on you Cleveland Press. Great, great journalism there. Way to stay unbiased, you tabloid piece of shit rag. I'm gonna say it right now, I hate fucking media like that. It drives me up the wall. So after all of this, why would Sam actually kill his wife? We kind of skipped over that a little bit. We said that robbers or house invaders really wouldn't have a reason to just go into the wife's room alone and kill her and then leave with basically nothing. The motive there is weird. Usually when the husband kills a wife, there is some kind of motive, be it life insurance or something. And in this case, the prosecution believed that he was having an affair with one Susan Hayes, a 24-year-old laboratory technician at Bayview Hospital in Bay Village. The prosecution attempted to show that Hayes was indeed the motive for the murder. It seems like a flimsy prosecution strategy, but, I mean, people have been convicted on much less, I'm very sure of that. So there was a defense strategy in place. Shepard's attorney, William Corrigan, argued that Shepard had severe injuries himself and that these injuries were inflicted by the intruder. Corrigan based his argument on the report made by the neurosurgeon, Charles Elkins, who examined Shepard and found he had suffered a cervical contusion, nerve injury, and many absent or weak reflexes, most notably on the left side of his body and the injury in the region of the second cervical vertebrae in the back of the neck. 
Elkins stated that it was impossible to fake or stimulate the missing reflex responses. However, that was never said on record. So take that for what you will. That could just be a little bit of hearsay. The defense did further argue that the crime scene was extremely bloody, yet the only blood evidence appearing on Shepard was a blood stain on his trousers, presumably where he fell beside his wife and did the old Darth Vader, no, you know, I mean, that's what I would do. Corrigan also argued two of Marilyn's teeth had been broken and that the pieces had been pulled from her mouth, suggesting she had possibly bitten her assailant. He told the jury that Shepard had no open wounds, Observers have questioned the accuracy of the claims that Marilyn Shepard had lost her teeth while biting her attacker, arguing that her missing teeth are more consistent with the severity of the beating that she received to her face and skull. Apparently, it was very bad. Like, she couldn't be recognized bad. To counter that, a criminologist by the name of Paul L. Kirk later said that if the beating had broken Mrs. Shepard's teeth, pieces would have been found inside her mouth and her lips would have been severely damaged, which was not the case. So it seems like the majority of the blows were landed to the top portion of her face and head. Now, in a very poor judgment, Shepard took the stand on his own defense, testifying that he'd been sleeping downstairs on a daybed when he awoke to his wife's screams. He said, quote, I think she cried or screamed my name once or twice, during which time I ran upstairs thinking that she might be having a reaction similar to convulsions that she had in the early days of her pregnancy. I charged into her room and saw a form with a light garment, I believe, at the time, grappling with something or someone. During this short period, I could hear loud moans or groaning sounds and noises. I was struck down. It seems like I was hit from behind somehow, but had grappled this individual form in front of, or generally in front of me. I was apparently knocked out. The next thing I knew, I was gathering my senses while coming to, sitting in position next to the bed, my feet forward in the hallway. I looked at my wife. I believe I took her pulse and felt that she was gone. I believe that I thereafter instinctively or even subconsciously ran into my youngster's room next door and somehow determined that he was alright. I'm not sure how I determined this. After all, I thought I had heard a noise downstairs, seemingly in the front eastern portion of the house. End quote. Shepard ran back downstairs and chased what he described as a bushy-haired intruder, or form, down to Lake Erie Beach below his home, before being knocked out once again. The defense called 18 character witnesses for Shepard, and two witnesses said that they had seen a bushy-haired man near the Shepard's home on the day of the crime. However, there is no record of that either, so again, potential hearsay. So, what happened after all that? Well, on December 21st, just a few months after the trial began, and after deliberating for four days, the jury found Shepard guilty of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. On January 7th, 1955, shortly after his conviction, Shepard was told that his mother, Ethel, had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Eleven days later, Shepard's father, Richard, died of a bleeding gastric ulcer and stomach cancer. Shepard was allowed to attend both funerals, but was required to wear handcuffs. On February 13, 1963, while F. Lee Bailey was pursuing the appeals process, Shepard's former father-in-law, Thomas S. Reese, died by suicide in East Cleveland. Thomas's wife had died in 1929 when their daughter, Marilyn, was in grade school. 
It's important to note here as well that in 1959, Shepard voluntarily took part in cancer studies by the Sloan Kettering Institute for Cancer Research, allowing live cancer cells to be injected into his body, which sounds absolutely fucking terrifying. But that's all I got for you today. This is indeed going to be a two-parter. What happened after the trial? And if this is an unsolved crime, why do we have some sort of resolution? Well, maybe we don't. Maybe it's a red herring. Maybe there's more to learn on the next episode that'll come out next week. So I hope you enjoyed this. Let me know your theories as to what happened to Marilyn in any sort of social media form. But until next time, my name is Casey and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a 5-star rating on Spotify. You can only do that on the mobile app right now and there's no reviews, just a rating. But if you do, please reach out to me on any social media form again and I will give you a nice big old shout out. So thank you to the people who have done it so far. That's awesome. You can still leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts as well. So any five-star ratings there will get read out on the show as well as a shout-out. Find me on social media at HorrorShots on Facebook, at HorrorShotsProd is in production on Twitter, or Ominous Origins Pod on Instagram. You'll notice I'm not super active, but I do scroll and check and look at notifications and all that kind of fun stuff. So again, until next time.